Welcome to Tales from the Dance Floor, a podcast exploring the lives and times of people from all walks of life who followed their passions and made careers out of DJing, producing, parties, dance culture, and the music industry. I'm Phil Morse from Digital DJ Tips. Let's get started. I'm speaking to Scotty Hugerbrug, who is one of the important people at Serato, one of the most beloved DJ software and production software now companies uh, in our in our world. So, Scotty, welcome. Thanks. It's good to um, good to chat. So, you were telling me just before we hit record that it's extremely busy for you at the moment. You've just got home at the end of a, a hectic day. So, uh, are you in the mood to just relax and chew the fat and chat your life? Can you kind of like uh, turn off the day and? focusing on a longer term view for a few minutes yeah yeah look i mean um as much as it's hectic it's it's something that i really love doing so and it's really exciting with serato studio coming out soon so yeah so it's a good time to talk to you i guess because uh because you're right at the heart of all that stuff in Mm. marketing Uh, so all right scotty before we do get on to kind of where you're at now um i always like to start by going right back to the very beginning uh, and just to ask you about your first experience as a music fan can you remember a moment when you suddenly realized that music was something that might end up being pretty powerful in your life um you know you you and your radio in your bedroom or the first time you saw a dj at work or something from from very early on that you can share with us um i mean i think the first memories of music is sitting in the car with my father listening to the radio um we had the station in New Zealand, we'll still got it, called Radio Hauraki. And um, they played classic rock, and that was kind of what my dad grew up on. And so that's kind of what I grew up on. So Bob Dylan and Pink Floyd and Rolling Stones and all that sort of thing. And that sort of, I don't know, resonated with me. And then I suppose from a electronic dance music standpoint, which is kind of where I'm at now, um just going to a club and seeing a DJ and just being, oh my God, what, what are they doing up there? It was actually, um, hard house was the thing that I got into originally. And, um, I just was blown away, blown away by what they were doing. And I just couldn't wrap my head around how they were producing the sounds they were. So that kind of really kickstarted my kind of love for DJing actually. So are you a DJ? Was DJing something that you then got into because of seeing that scene? Yeah, yeah. So I was at university and pretty poor and um, DJing was a pretty expensive proposition in New Zealand. Um, And so, yeah, saved up and got a, gosh, I think it was like a, I think it was like a belt, was it belt driven turntables like a denon thing and um i think a vestax mixer and started to try to figure it out and the internet was pretty um early these days and there was no training programs there's no dj tips i don't think at that point and um, we were were a little bit later than i was still trying to figure it out myself i think at that at that point too yeah so i downloaded um some manuals basically on how to learn how to mix and um, did the old get two songs that sound the same thing. So bought a couple of vinyls and just kind of practiced listening over and over again as to where the sort of um, 
where the fills were and trying to mix mix in and figure out which fill came first um, in order to sort of beat match. So that kind of, gosh, that was early 2000s, I'd say, when that happened for me. And um, yeah, kind of never really looked back, moved on from hard house to breaks to house music. Um, and now I'm really into sort of drum and bass, a little bit of dubstep as well. So when you bought your decks, you were, you say you were at university, and did you then try and get gigs to pay for the decks and the records and the and the whole hobby, or did you, did it just remain a hobby? Um, I tried getting gigs. I was uh, was okay, I suppose. I was never amazing. I got a few gigs here and there, um, but nothing really to sort of pay my way through university or anything. Um, it was more to sort of buy more records, basically. So right. Um, in New Zealand, because all the vinyl that I was collecting was from the UK, it had to be imported. And so we were paying, well, 25 New Zealand dollars, which is about, I suppose, 12 and a half pounds um, per record. And I th- I'm pretty sure that's quite expensive for the you know UK. I think it's three or four dollars, or three or four pounds, or something. Yeah, so, that's reasonably expensive. I guess they're all imports, right? So yeah. you don't have the uh, you know the imports are just as expensive anywhere, I guess. But yeah, yeah. Yep. So yeah, so as a poor student, I could afford to buy one a, a week, and um, so yeah, it was a bit of a pilgrimage every week to go buy my one record. Um, and go through sort of 20 or 30 or 40 of them and be able to only pick one was pretty tough um, and just kind of waded through that for a few years during the sort of vinyl the vinyl years and then CDJs came along and sort of switched to them um, pretty quickly. Um, found CDJs. My beat matching wasn't that great, so CDJs really helped me with that. And then i am um, obviously been able to buy digital copies, I mean, for, you know, three or four dollars instead of 25 yeah was a game changer for me yeah so while this is going on you're at university and you are studying something in marketing i believe mm-hmm. and that's the professional career you chose in in marketing right how did your career start away from music um so i I was actually um, at university and someone came in and spoke to us um, from a telecommunications company, actually, a brand manager. And um, I just thought, I want that job. I really, I really like the look of that. And um, I didn't really know what I was up to. I was studying marketing and information management, which is like a, a merger of business and uh, information technology. So I learned to code, learning things like SQL and HTML and whatnot. And, um, yeah, saw what he was doing and got really interested. So once I finished my degree, I just sent them a note saying I'm super keen. And they said, well, we don't have anything for you, but we can put you in the call center. And so um, worked in the call center for six months and just haggled and has- sorry, hustled to get a job in the marketing department. And finally, they gave me um, a marketing assistant role. So I was sort of selling broadband um, as a marketer for five five years, four years or so, and then went to the UK and did the OE and travelled around Europe, did sort of six weeks on a train through Eastern Europe and then settled in London for a little while and then um, worked for Lloyd's Banking Group 
was a digital marketer and Bisco B as well. And then came back to New Zealand and got more telco experience, went went back and started a new telco called Flip and ran that, was the general manager for a little while. And then um, there was a restructure and it didn't really play out well for me. So um, I started looking around and the Serato job turned up and it was just like, oh my God, dream job. Um, at that stage, I'd been DJing for probably 10, 12 years and been on Serato for about three or four years. So, you know, I was sitting there going, gosh, I'm, I could be the CMO of a company that um, not only is a you know global leader and all the rest of it, but sells a product that I, that I love. It's my hobby, my passion. So I've um, really hit the jackpot, I suppose, and um, interviewed for the job and, and got it. I actually... Um, in my cover letter, I sent through a mix tape that I'd made and said, look, you know, not only am I a marketer, but I'm a DJ and here's, here's proof. Here's a, here's a mix that I made. And, um, you know, at Serato, we really believe strongly in trying to hire people that have got sort of both both business skills and, and musical skills. And, and I had both and um, got the job. Um, that was about three years ago. Wow. So what a roller coaster. And, yeah. you know... Looking back, doing a degree that had marketing and coding and ending up working for a – with, with music as your hobby and mm-hmm. ending up working in marketing for a software company that happens <laughs> to just be in, in <laughs> DJing. Yeah. It's kind of one of those moments where everything comes together, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the way of the world these days, certainly marketing, is that um, – understanding how to work with developers is really really important Mm. um from building websites to you know the new sort of age of using data to inform everything you do and ultimately um as a marketer if you can't communicate to the people that control those services um you're in trouble basically so um it was just one of those things where i was kind of just i actually didn't know what i wanted to do when i went to university but i just kind of thought those two subjects seem interesting and it just happened to be a good move in terms of the way that the world was changing at that time where the internet was just exploding and internet marketing was becoming a thing and so being able to kind of cross that those two things together uh, allowed me to succeed really and it's helped me to this day actually as you said it's, in, it's, it's allowed me to get into the job like I've got yeah so uh, meanwhile, DJing, uh, is it something that you've managed to continue to do through all that time? Do you still kind of look forward to getting on your decks? Do you look forward to getting an hour to go and buy some music or getting yep. the odd gig? Yeah, um, so I've got a SZ2 at home. And um, yeah, I try to play oh, well, probably once a fortnight, I'd say. Just have a jam sort of thing. Um, yeah. I don't really, um, I don't really do gigs anymore. Um, but I mean, we've got decks set up and that at Serato. So, and in the marketing department, we've got a, a pretty decent setup. So we try to sort of have a jam in the afternoons on Fridays. Um, and then, you know, if there's a house party, um, and there's some decks there, I'll, I'll bring my laptop for sure. I mean, I, I love it. I mean, I DJed my own wedding or well, parts of it. So, 
Uh, that I, must yeah. have gone down well with your wife. <laughs> she she only let me uh, DJ for an hour or so, so <laughs> which is fair enough because you know you've got to. It is kind of fair enough, yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember the same. I remember the same conversation. But uh, but anyway, um, so talk, talk to me about New Zealand. I want to know about being for what the rest of the world thinks is a long long way away from everything mm-hmm. you went to london for for some time you went traveling i guess going traveling is quite common among among young people in new zealand right because of the, the distance from yeah from everything um tell me about your your experience and how that changed your outlook on things yeah so i mean in new zealand it's almost a rite of passage to kind of do what's called an oe or an overseas experience um, and people just do it in their 20s. I did it when I was 25, 26. Um, mm-hmm. And the way that I wanted to do it was to have a bit of a career first and then get a job that allows me to kind of travel and, and live a, you know, um, semi-comfortable life, I suppose. Some people choose to go straight after university and just rough it out and party yeah. hard and all that. And... Um, as far as New Zealand, I think it, New Zealand's very sheltered. It's incredibly beautiful, and we don't really have um, the social problems that a lot of countries have. Um, you know, the whole Christchurch incident that happened not long ago was um, shattering for the for the country. I mean, people were in tears. I was very upset um, because it just doesn't happen in New Zealand. Um and we thought we were kind of removed from it. So that was a real big wake-up call. But on the most part, um, New Zealand's a very pleasant sort of nice place to live with lots of beaches and um, it's a very outdoorsy kind of place. Um, and, you know, the, the people are pretty good and all the rest of it. Um, but you do miss out on the, I suppose, the melting pot of the cultures because places like London are just jam-packed with all sorts and the density of the, the city means that you get all the big acts turning up all the time because it just makes sense financially uh, and also it's easy because they fly from, you know, they're probably based in London or they're based in New York and it's an easy flight. But for New Zealand, we we often get artists come to New Zealand because they're going to Australia and they tack on a trip because we're like a, you know, a small city of Australia, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, we're very small. Um, so the big the big names don't really turn up as much as, 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 say, you know, when you live in London or LA or New York or any of those kind of cities like that. So um, that is something that you do miss out in New Zealand. But, the you know, the trade-off is that you don't, you don't get the hustle and bustle, the um, and the social problems like I was talking about. You, the, the dramas. Um, we don't have Trump, etc. Um, so yeah, it's kind of one of those trade-off situations. It's somewhere that you'd raise your kids. I mean, that's that's something that struck me when I went to London and when I've been travelling around the world. Is that New Zealand's a very nice place to raise kids. It's it's very safe. Those sorts of things. So, mm. so when you travelled. You ended up working, which I guess is also something that is not normal for people having their OE experience. So, what, what, how, how did that come about? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, the, the OE experience for certainly New Zealanders going to London, you get a two-year visa. So um, working's quite common um, because you just go there and you get contracts. And so you do, right. you do a six-month contract. And um, I was lucky enough to pick up a couple and, and that afforded me to to travel around Europe a couple of times. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, in total, I probably spent maybe three months traveling around Europe. Um, we bought a van and drove around this big three-ton sort of Ford Transit thing and went all, all over the place. Um, but, you know, it's it's pretty difficult to, to get a job because, um, you know, get a good job, that is, because you, you kind of waltz up there and they're like, well, you – you're on holiday. Clearly, you're, you're on an OE. You're going to be. You can only stick around for two years, um, and you don't have any experience in the UK market. And so um, that can be pretty, pretty challenging. It took me two months to find a job. Um, I almost flew home. Actually, it was coming from a good job in New Zealand and pretty feeling pretty confident to being um, knocked down a few pegs when I landed in in London and thought, sweet, I'll get a job. I'll make some money, I'll travel, it'll be all good. And um, it, re- it really wasn't for for two hard months um, through the English summer with no money, watching people go to festivals and me trying to trying to find a job. And um, at the point of ringing my parents to ask for some more money so I could stick around, and then I um, got a phone call one day and landed a contract, which saved me. Cool. So uh, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize there was this this culture of kind of getting away and doing some work to to sustain yourself through that time. So talk about returning to New Zealand after that then and go kind of going back into the same world, the same telecoms world that you were in before you left. Was that kind of like, well, I've done that now, it's time to move on and, 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 and everything was, was all right? Or was it kind of, did it feel like a step backwards or... Did you have no choice? What was the what was the um what did that feel like at that stage? Um so I came back because a big part of it was um my partner or now wife um had already been to the UK and used her visa up. She came over. Um we basically we broke up before we left and then we got back together and she came over and she couldn't stay for very long and it was like, well if it works out we you know we should move back. Mm-hmm. And so, so we decided to do that. Um, you know, she was there and did some sort of odd jobs for three months and then came back with me and then um, got back to New Zealand and it was like a handbrake had been put on my life because living in London's pretty exciting and I was traveling mm-hmm. around and doing weekends to Paris and all that type of stuff. And um, suddenly I was on the other side of the world and it was um, a little bit sort of boring I'll be honest same old job um, doing similar things um, living in a similar area and I was like oh my god I've got to I've got to do something I've got to move on I've got to go live in Melbourne for example and that was something we looked at or go live in Vancouver don't know just you know let's find another big city and um, what happened was that I got a opportunity to do a startup Telco, which was um, within the same group of companies that I work for, but a brand new startup, which I was allowed to basically um, create how I wanted. So I wrote the marketing plan and the product and 
designed the billing and worked pretty closely with developers on the construction of the site, et cetera, et cetera, and then ended up running it. And so I got an opportunity, I suppose, to have a taste of running my own business, which was, which was really fun. And that was quite successful, um, which kept me in New Zealand, basically. And so that sort of, I did that for four years once I got back. And um, that kind of kept me happy, I suppose. And then, like I said, there was a restructure of the, the basically the company got built, bought, and um, they came in, they restructured the company and um, actually missed out on the, the top job that I was after and um, ended up in a situation where I just wasn't enjoying myself. So um, started to look around and found Serato. So in your job in, in Serato, you travel an awful lot now ironically you kind of got the dream job but also you got the travel back yeah um you know i follow your instagram and you're posting from san francisco and vancouver and la and all kinds of places is that now great and brilliant and amazing and what you always wanted or now that you're married and kind of got lots of lots of other pressures on your on you is that kind of sometimes a bit of a challenge to fit in all that travel that that i'm guessing comes with the job right yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's an incredible thing to have. I mean, to live in New Zealand and be able to travel to those places is um, mm. is amazing, to be honest with you. Um, it's very um, exhausting, though. Um, it's one of those things where I, I you've got to be careful that you don't sort of um, take it for granted because it is such a such an amazing thing. Um but the what happens is that you've got to pack so much in to make the trip worthwhile that it's non-stop the entire time. And so you can get yourself a bit worn out. And so as much as they're amazing experiences, sometimes you just quite like getting home and um, getting on with it. And the, the other thing is you've got to also, whilst doing all the meetings and all the rest of it, um, run a team you know, uh, back in New Zealand, you know, launch products, do sales, run campaigns, proof things, all that type of stuff uh, remote, yeah. remotely uh, at a different time. So you're always, um, you know, New Zealand is one day ahead, um, four hours behind LA, which is a bit of a mind bender. But the short of it is, is that you're out of sync with everybody. Yes. Um, so trying to do meetings and Skypes and all the rest of it can be can be challenging. So it's kind of one of those incredible experiences, but you've really got to work hard and earn it, I suppose, to make them work. It's, it's interesting because I, I, I talk to a lot of people in your position who travel a lot, and I do, to an extent I do it myself. So everyone seems to have a different way of dealing with it. Um, so to give you two examples, I was talking to, to Rob from Beatport recently who said, I just – cart my family along and chill out and just try you know just just take it as it comes it's the only way I can deal with it mm. I was speaking to laid back Luke who said I I stick on New York time wherever I am in the world I'm on New York time and everything bends to me because right. otherwise I can't cope with it yeah. uh, and that's the way he's found to deal with it and of course in your position I'm going to guess you don't get the, the the luxury of taking your wife along and she's got her own stuff going on and stuff so I'm wondering how you kind of have come to peace with it you say you try and squeeze everything in but do you have kind of tactics for jet lag and mm-hmm. for getting into the right time zones what's your kind of kind of tr- uh, tips for 
tips for traveling around the world and, and staying sane? Um, something I learned very quickly was don't go drinking the first night you land <laughs> <laughs> because uh, it ruins you like for, for a week because you're jet lagged and hungover and you just don't, you can't seem to sink your body very quick. So yeah, um, because the thing is you land and you're all excited, oh, I'm in LA or New York or wherever it is. And uh, let's go have a drink, and then it turns into a couple, and then suddenly you're, you're hung over the next day and jet lagged, and it just sucks. So um, that's a pro tip. Um, in terms of how I deal with it, I mean, I don't fly that much. I'd probably go three or four times a year. Yeah. So it's not like I'm compl- I'm out of sync all the time as far as the body mm-hmm. part is concerned. Um I do use sleeping pills to to right myself, I suppose. Um, that's probably the the other thing. If if you don't mind using them, um, having one on the plane to get you through. Like going to LA is pretty easy. It's twelve hours. You just get on, have dinner, because you leave at like seven or eight on at at night, and then you get there at three in the afternoon. So you just sort of stay out, watch a few movies, pop a sleeping pill, sleep, wake up. And then the night that you land, have another sleeping pill to just force you to kind of get through. And then usually you're all right. Um, you know, LA is the easiest, but, you know, and London's kind of the the other end, which um, it's the same sort of techniques. It just takes probably three, two or three days to kind of write yourself just because the, the time difference is, is yeah. so, so different. Still, they're good problems to have, as you say. And yeah. the other thing that, you, of course, you, you manage to do in your job a lot is visit clubs mm. and see DJs. And I guess you're getting a chance to do that more now than you've ever done, right? Yeah, I mean, I've I've had some pretty crazy experiences. I mean, um, very early, I mean, I'm a big fan of drum and bass. And very, very early on, we went over to set up the London office and I um, went to um, the AEI offices, which are the guys who look after UKF and drum and bass arena and that was just for me oh my god I mean we went to and then um, yeah so we went there and that was sort of talking about content creation they're like oh you know what are you up to this week I was like oh going to Fabric there's a good lineup and the guy's like oh yeah I'm going I'll I'll flick your flick your text I was like okay and um, we're standing outside the club and he texts me and said oh I'm with um come outside I'll, I'll no where was I I was outside and he said come around the corner I'm with Boris I'm like, who's Boris and um, Boris was Nets guy and so they um, introduced me to him I'm a big fan and yeah. um, and he loves New Zealanders we had a chat about that and then they said I'll oh, come with us so okay and so we went in the back way to Fabric and then next thing you know I'm sitting in the green room with um, Nets guy and Culture Shock and Lodestar, Wilkinson, Tantrum Design. I mean, just, I mean, for me as a drum and bass guy, it was just like, oh my God, this is just crazy. Um, so, yeah, I've had a few sort of stories like that um, just randomly. But the, the thing with Serato is actually the hip hop side of things. I mean, we're, we're extremely strong in that, in that area as well. So, meeting, and I don't really know hip hop that well, but um, we go to the what's called the playlist retreat um each year which is out at dj jazzy jeff's house in delaware 
and um, that's hip hop royalty turns up each each year, sort of eighty to a hundred of them, and um, that's been a great great experience. Amazing people there, especially Jeff. He's, he's such a um, genuine guy, actually. So um, yeah, there's I mean there's some pretty good perks with all the travel for sure. So this idea of Jazzy Jeff's hip hop retreat sounds absolutely incredible, and it's kind of one of the one of the planet's best tickets for certain types of people, I guess. Tell us a bit more about it. I mean, what's the, what's the vibe? What what happens? Um, so about five years ago, um, I wasn't actually with Stray at the time, but Jeff and his manager Nicole, um, I think they just kind of wanted to create an environment for musicians to come and be creative without the pressures of uh, performing and fans and and brands, I suppose, um, and basically just spend the week catching up, making music, getting creative, and and meeting new people and creating connections. And I think the name playlist comes from basically they share playlists of music with each other. So it was really kind of, I think it was a DJ thing to start with. And so sharing your playlists was this mm-hmm. thing that he used to do with all his friends. And I think that basically it's like, look, instead of just sharing stuff around remotely, let's get together and start doing that. And um, it kind of evolved from there. And they've spent a lot of time making sure that it's not brand heavy. So Serato is one of probably maybe five or six other brands that actually get to go it's very sort of you know you you need to make sure you've got the right attitude you're not there to sell to artists um it's more about being informative and collaborating with them and supporting them so we go there and we're we're a major sponsor have been since the start and we do a couple of presentations we sort of talk about what we're up to where we're going new products and then our artist relations team basically spend the week connecting with artists, helping them out with any troubleshooting or, or help or whatever they need. Um, we also run a, a DJ scratch battle that we do. Um, and you can imagine you know, the entries, this, you know, it's Scratch Bastard and um, all sorts down there. Yeah, that'd be so, a reasonable, reasonable standard, right? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty high. And... Um, yeah, it's 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 just a it's a really cool sort of vibe to be honest, and it's not it's not like a festival, it's not like a conference, it's 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 a retreat. It's quite a quite an apt name, really. Yeah, um, and we love it. So we we um, we've been in it every year for, and this year it's happening um, in a few months. I'm actually flying out there um, to do that again. Sounds fantastic. Tell us something else. So tell us another club-based uh, story. We've had a, a great one from Fabric and, of course, Jazzy Jeff, but tell us something else that's just made you kind of catch yourself and think, this is, this couldn't have happened if, if you know, this hadn't been my job and so on. We What did we do? Oh, so we went to see Layback Luke once. And um, who was it? I think it was it was via, um, via a guy called Toon who looks after some of the music brands. And, um, yeah. Said, oh, come, come see Luke. You know, I was like, all right. And um, so he said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll get, you know, we'll get in. We don't have to pay, etc., etc. I was like, all right, okay, fine. And so Luke turns up, and he's turns up with this full escort, 
this massive SUV and I think there were even cops, I think, sort of clearing the path for this van. I was like, wow, okay. And um, so he's ushered in with his massive entourage. Yeah, and then so he sort of said, oh, well, you know, we've we've got some, you know, good tickets and you don't need to worry about it. And so, okay, fine. And then so next thing you know, we're sort of standing right next to the DJ booth in this private little thing um, with with Layback Luke, of, of which I'm a fan of as well. And um, you can kind of, the, the, the crazy thing is you're able to kind of just walk up and talk to these people and mm. they're pretty normal nice nice guys and girls um and then you just get a front and center sort of view of what they do um which is crazy because usually you're you're the punter staring up at them going what are they yeah. up there you know I'd, I'd love to see what's going on and so i can I've, I've had these kind of behind the scenes experiences which are which are really nice um but even sort of moving away from the club just having dinner with a track you know just casual dinner with him. I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> that's crazy." That's something, that's something I have to say. I'm, I'm, I'm very jealous of. As he's a DJ, I completely admire. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's so cool. And the interesting thing about Luke is, we 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 work with Luke at Digital DJ Tips. And the interesting thing about Luke is that he he said to me recently, "Whenever I play a gig, if possible, I try and go to the front of the crowd and look up at the DJ playing before me." Mm. Because I want to know what it looks like if you're in that crowd. I want to know how much I have to move to be noticed. I want to know the way it's all been laid out. I, I just want to know what the experience is going to be when I'm behind the deck so I can give the best experience back yeah. to the people who are in that position and who aren't kind of backstage and seeing it all. So it's interesting that um, that you say that because, as you say, these are normal people and they're just trying to do a, a great job up there, which is something I think some people don't realize about so-called superstar DJs. Yeah, look, he you can tell he really cares and that's that's evident with A-Track as well. They they really really love the art form and care deeply about it. Um and and it comes out in their music and their performances I think, but also the way that they just speak to people and speak to speak to me when yeah. they, when they meet me because you know they could just view me as another kind of corporate guy and trying to sort of you know, milk them or whatever. But, um, you know, because of the work we do with the artist relations team and the way we treat artists, um, you know, they, they treat us as, as, as people as we do them. So it's really nice. And I think you probably get a sense of how small the music industry and especially DJing really is. And I guess that coming from New Zealand, that's not something that's utterly alien to you, right? I guess all your life you've realized that you're going to bump into the same people again and again. And, if you if you do right by people, they'll do right by you, and that actually, it all comes back. Uh, and have you seen correlations between the kind of community in in New Zealand and the community you're, you're discovering through Serato, as far as that kind of thing goes? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the the community aspect is something that we um, really really care about, and um, I think that I mean to talk about the New Zealand thing, I think it's because we. Um, we're a little bit humble, I suppose. We don't like to sort of um, boast too much. Um, it's quite a down-to-earth, enjoyable experience for some of these artists because they're used to dealing with people trying to haggle and sell mm. and all the rest of it. And it's really sort of helped us um, build a community, which is a huge part of what Serato is about, is, is, is being sort of authentic and enabling people and talking to people. And that's, that's why we've got our artist relations program. It's not just about 
troubleshooting, you know, the biggest names in, in hip hop or whatever. It's actually about building relationships and um, you end up with the best results through doing that. And because the industry is so small, it's a very effective technique because word gets around um, that, you know, we, we're, we're good to work with. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, that is certainly the, the image of Serato you get from, from all angles, which I think is, as you say, it's a, it's a good thing, good business thing, but also a good thing to do anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially in this industry. Um, okay. So I want to ask you about the next 10 years of your life. And this isn't, uh, I don't want you to tell me something that your, your CEO doesn't know or anything like that. Sure. What I find is if you look back 10 years, if we, if any of us look back 10 years at where we were in kind of 2009 at the time of recording this, that would be 10 years ago. It's kind of hard sometimes to, to kind of just recognize how much things have changed for us. We kind of think that things don't change very much, but certainly if I think back to 2009, I hadn't even started Digital DJ Tips, which is now the biggest online school in the world. And, you know, so an awful lot has changed, which I wouldn't generally give credit for in my own head unless I actually go through the process of looking back and thinking. So I guess it's the same with you. If you go back 10 years, you know, an awful lot's changed in your life. And so therefore, looking forward 10 years, it's only logical to say an awful lot is going to change in the next 10 years as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, looking through that prism, what, where do you think you'll be in 10 years time? What will have changed in your personal life or in where you live or in what you're doing? What kind of bigger picture, longer term things have you always wanted that are going to, you're going to need to get around to or dreams that may or may not happen? You know, where's, where, do you, where do you see it going for you personally in the next decade? Um it's a hard one, isn't it? It's a big question. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm recently married, so, you know, doing the kind of growing up thing, um, yeah. having kids at some point yeah. is, is on the list. Um, so, you know, there's kind of the, um, yeah, the growing up side of things, I think. Um, and you've already said you're in the right country for, for the kids. In the right country for doing all that, yep, yep. Yeah. Um, I mean, professionally, I mean, Serato is, it's, it's where I want to be. I, I can't really think beyond Serato at this point. Um, we, we're kind of like on the verge of really accel- accelerating and doing some cool stuff. I think the, that studio is, um, is an amazing product. It's got me making music, which, um, I've always, always struggled with. So, um, you know, it's, it's really cool to kind of, um, for me, take Serato out of that DJ, um, category into, uh, music, you know, more generally, and then ultimately, yeah. um, you know, the lifestyle brand stuff. So thinking about, you know, how, how does Serato sort of move much like say a skateboard brand has, into the sort of more mainstream and, and become something that's um, more attractive to people at a brand level rather than just straight up, you know, I'm a DJ, I'm a producer sort of thing. Um, yeah. Looking at actually, well, how can Serato be more than that? Um, which is, you know, for me, the, the biggest challenge of them all is to actually um, pull, pull off something like that, become, mm. some, you know, like Vans or... Um, I mean, obviously, that's a big goal, but 
you know, those those are the sort of lofty things that I think about is how do you kind of get that mainstream appeal? How do you become super cool? How do you how do you do a merch line? Um, how do you do some amazing collaborations with some some big brands? Um, all those sorts of exciting sort of marketing things from my standpoint, whilst um, delivering kind of really exciting, amazing experiences for our customers through our products, which, you know, now with the studio coming out and DJ being strong and putting those two products together the way we've had, um, it's super exciting actually for us. Um, So that's kind of why I can't really think beyond Serato because there's so much still more to do, to be honest. Yeah, well, no, it's, it, it kind of makes sense. And, and, and what you're talking about is a change in a company anyway into something that possibly will be quite unrecognizable in 10 years anyway. So um, I want to talk to you about your personal views on, on, on just for the last five minutes, because sure. this isn't necessarily a, um, you know, a, a, a training podcast or even necessarily massively a DJ or production podcast. It's more about the people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you've, you're a super fan of this whole thing, just like a lot of people listening to this are. And so you're going to have views on where DJing and where DJing and producing are going and how mainstream they can become and how the way people consume music is changing. Um, so for you, you've started in vinyl, moved mm-hmm. into digital. You've started to make music because of the stuff digital brings to the table. Is music... Uh, going to grow and become something that's far more, you know, interacting with music is going to become far more mainstream, do you think, in the in the years to come because of technology? Is it going to become far more normal to, to be a kind of, to produce, to sit there producing with your iPad instead of just listening to the stuff, in your view? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's becoming incredibly accessible through technology. Um, if you look at the way people, um, you know, like, so making, making f- filming, right? So making a film or a short video or whatever it may be 10 years ago um, was pretty challenging. And if you think about what's possible now via YouTube and iPhones and all the rest of it and all the editing software, it's extremely accessible. Um, and music, I think, is going to head that way. Whether it becomes as mainstream as video, um, probably not. But certainly I think that people will find it um, an accessible pastime that, that makes sense to them. That people mm. because there's so many music lovers out there. Um, that you know, like for me, I was I played guitar, I played saxophone, did a bunch of things. I just couldn't I wasn't very musical per se. But I loved music. And so DJing was was a massive exciting outlet for me and I think there's a lot of people that fall into that category that maybe haven't started DJing for one reason or another Um, that production through simple means is something that they could potentially get into Um, and as it becomes easier and easier and you sort of remove all the um, all the kind of I suppose the, the, the maintenance or the you know when you're using certain doors that you've, you've got to do a bunch of work to get to a certain place to make the sound things sound a particular way or even get an idea out and that yeah. that ruins your creativity and it's and it's really problematic for a new user if you've got to do all this work to get the little ditty out in your head and it shouldn't be that hard and i think if you crack that you enable users to continue that um 
the momentum that got them using the program in the first place, right? So if you remove those barriers and you make it easy and fun, um, I think you could open up um, the word of production, especially to a lot of people. I think production's probably more accessible than DJing, if you think about it, because DJing has got quite a cost factor to it. Um, production, you can just sit down and muck around and start making beats pretty quickly. Yeah. So, so talking, yeah. Of, talking of productions, have you got your mobile phone handy? Uh, yes. What was the last track you shazammed? <laughs> Be honest. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, I've got mine handy as well, and I don't know. So I will, uh, as you're looking up yours, I'll look up mine. It's not, Go for it. It's not particularly cool. Um, Got It Bad by Leisure. Got It Bad by Leisure. So tell us about that track. Um, it's just a kind of funky, chill track. I've been getting into kind of hip-hop um, flavoured lo-fi type of type of tracks at the moment and this kind of fits a little bit into that category cool yeah um just just got a cool vocal it's not it's not a banger i've got lots of bangers though (laughs) if you want (laughs) that's it's it's all about it's all about that moment mine was instrumental need by ralphie rosario which is an old very old house track okay Uh, trying to remember trying to remember where a piano riff came from Right. Um, so there you go. There you go. Yeah. I showed you mine and you showed me yours on the Shazams. So um, so one final question then, because we've reached the end of our time. Thank you very much, Scotty, for you know being it. so honest and telling us some, some great stories. Uh, the final question I'm going to ask you is, can you tell us something surprising about yourself that maybe you haven't told many people? Um, so my last name... Anyone that has my last name is related to me. There's only relatives as far as my last name's concerned. Um, wow. Yeah. So you see so, who broke? So, they are family of mine. Well, I, as a good podcaster should, I did my work before coming on to this recording, and mm-hmm. there's only four pages on Google, mm. which is very unusual, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that rings very, very true. And it's South African, right? Stutch. So, oh, okay, of course, I think South African because that's where I see um, where I see such names. Um, so you are originally from Dutch? So my, my grandfather um, moved from Holland to New Zealand about 70 years ago or so. Wow. Well, there we go. Yeah, yeah. And the last name came about because it was when Napoleon um, had control of Holland. My my history is going to be shocking history, but this is, the, this, <laughs> this is what I think my grandfather told me many years ago. But basically, um, Napoleon, because he basically started to implement a tax system in his um, reign, um, my old family had to think of a last name because they didn't have one for some reason or they didn't they didn't want to be linked to some other name or something like that. Either way, they had to pick a name. And so they walked outside and they saw a bridge and um, it was a high bridge. And so um, they picked higher bridge, which in Dutch is Hugerbrook. Well, there you go. Yep. It's, uh, you, you did us proud. You gave us something that, 
very few people know. And I guess there aren't too many of you in the phone book in New Zealand, right? No, there's 20 of us, I think. <laughs> yeah, not many. Perfect. Yeah. Okay, Scotty, thank you very, very much for joining us here on Tales from the Dance Floor. It's been great talking to you and the very best of luck from all of us here at Digital DJ Tips in your continuing career over at Serato. Cool. Yeah, no worries, man. Thank you for, um, for the chat. <laughs>